From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Denver's population swells 20% on weekdays. These are people driving into the city of Denver to work. And the reality is, is that that's not sustainable either if they're in single-occupied vehicles. And so to fight climate change and traffic, Mayor Michael Hancock wants people to have more options for getting around. Meanwhile, the region's transit agency is cutting routes. How do you crack that nut? Also, tackling youth violence. Typically, it was your 12 to 24 with more of the violence occurring with the older kids. Now you're seeing younger kids who are carrying weapons and taking them into middle schools. And, of course, I'll ask Denver's mayor about pit bulls. When they engage, they engage with greater severity and oftentimes resulting in fatalities. How owners of all dog breeds who don't follow the rules are part of the equation for Hancock. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. He had never used the veto pen after almost a decade in office. But that changed when Denver Mayor Michael Hancock scuttled a repeal of the city's pit bull ban. Unless city council overrides his veto, which they could do tonight, well, then the dogs will remain illegal. Assuming the ban stays in place because the bar is pretty high to undo a veto, I asked the mayor if he can envision legalizing pit bulls before his term ends. We have a long time uh, over the next three and a half years to continue to talk about this issue, uh, continue to look at it in a very, I think, uh, circumspective way, and to really learn as much as we possibly can, can learn, but also to improve our processes. And so is there a possibility? There's always a possibility. But at the end of the day, we've got some things that we have to do as a city. Improve our processes. Do yes. you think this wasn't handled the right way? No, no. I, th- I really applaud Councilman Herndon. He, when I talked to him, I did. It's Christopher uh, Herndon. Yeah, Councilman Chris Herndon. He did it right. He was very transparent, open. I knew for a while he was coming with it. I also share with him the complexities I have with legalizing or bringing back the breed of pit bulls in Denver. Uh, having been a, a native of Denver and watched how this became a law. What I'm talking about there is that today we have a licensing process in Denver where only one in five pet owners actually license their dogs. Yeah, let's be clear here. Denver actually requires all dog owners, no matter the breed, to license their dogs. Right. I have a feeling, Mayor, that if you asked 10 Denverites, I I don't know that... Eight of them would know that. Exactly the point I'm making. And, uh, and one of the things that uh, we got to improve our enforcement and promotion of that because it is important. And so we were going to layer a permitting process on top of a licensing process that's not working, as well as the number of off-leash dogs that we have in the city of Denver. We continuously, all over the city of Denver, complaints and concerns about off-leash dogs. We need to fix that. And then it's the not the responsible owners that we, and by the way, I think it's important to know that just because you don't license your dog, you're not responsible. That's not the point we're trying to make here. But we do have people who are not responsible dog owners. And it's important that uh, I want you to know that most of my review, after looking at all the information, data, it, it was those folks who most concerned me, along with the impact of uh, bites by pit bulls, uh, oftentimes leading to severe injuries uh, or fatalities. Of course, other dogs bite. All dogs I, I, bite. Let have me, the potential to bite. Let me play this from Councilman Herndon, who sponsored the legislation. Uh, this is from earlier this month. And he says he brought a slew of experts to council to testify. And they're all standing in front of you saying, these dogs are not more dangerous than any other breed. What you've never heard me say is, a pit bull is not going to bite. And I've never said that. All dogs bite. And my heart goes out to any family member who has had an incident with a dog bite. I'm a father, 
Yeah. I have a five-year-old, and when I heard people about young children, it, it rips at my heart. And to think I, that I would bring something forward that would make our communities less safe, less safe is absolutely not true. I would never do that. Our communities are not safe with this breed-specific legislation. He simply doubts the entire premise of the pit bull ban. Mm -hmm. The reality is that, you know, we've looked at a lot of data as well. We read voluminous amount of data, a lot of it provided by the same experts. I also got information from all over the nation. I had conversations with emergency room physicians as well as uh, pediatricians, talked to older adults, some in favor, some not in favor. I got to tell you, this is a very polarizing issue. You know, people are almost split down the middle on this issue. The reality is, is that, you know, when pit bulls engage with all dogs biting, and no one said that all dogs don't bite. We are saying that when dogs bite, what we learn is that pit bulls have a greater level of severity than most other dogs. And the reality is that last year, 69% of all fatalities caused by dog attacks were caused by pit bulls. Between 2012 and 2017, 66% of all fatalities caused by dog bites were caused by pit bulls. Those are numbers that I could not dismiss. When they engage, they engage with greater severity and oftentimes result in fatalities. Aren't there other breeds that are on the top of that list You've too? You've got some why dogs not, there, but it's, why a, not it's a wide gap between the next dog um, in terms of the fatalities that result from their bites. It sounded to me like you thought people's, some people's poor behavior, a failure to license their dogs or a failure to keep their dogs on a leash, in a way that responsible dog owners are having to pay for their poor behavior. Why should that be? Why should the law-abiding people who want to have a pit bull in their home, apparently Colorado's governor is among them. You, <laughs> well, this, no, he's this, not. He had a friend's dog. Well, I understand. <laughs> but it sounds like he wouldn't be afraid to bring one into his home with a, a kind of infamous tweet and photo now. Uh, but w why, why punish the folks following the law because of bad actors? The reality is, again, I go back to the number of severity and, and fatalities caused by pit bulls and uh, a great deal of concern. I am convinced, particularly when I talk to uh, emergency room physicians and pediatricians, uh, that these dogs, uh, when they engage, it could be very, very severe. You also mentioned your own upbringing in Denver as having informed this. Mm -hmm. what, did, what did you mean? I grew up with a, uh, with, at one point in my life, there was a pit bull in our family. Her name was Sue Ellen. And, and as most people describe their dogs or their pits, uh, that they, the experience they had from around the country, sweet, very kind, loving family dog. So no problems with Sue Ellen. When I was growing up around the age of 10, 11, I had an unfortunate incident with a neighbor's dog, a pit bull. And I just remember the dog biting me on the ankle and getting a hold of my foot and really literally taking three adult men to get that dog off of my foot. Is there a scar? No. Okay. Only an emotional one. In a tweet you sent about your veto, you said you'd gotten thousands of comments from the public about the legislation, uh, which would have required pit bulls be licensed and registered in the city. I wonder what the breakdown of the letters was, pro-con, and in any issue, how much attention do you pay to whether the people writing are in Denver or not? You know, on this issue, you do see where a lot of people are writing from. I did notice that an awful lot of the comments came from people outside of Colorado. Okay. Um, are they influential in your thinking? I, I mean, their points are influential. I mean, important to hear. And I read all of them. I, I did not read them looking to see who was from Colorado or taking points and are trying to put them in one column, Colorado outside of Colorado. That didn't happen. Nor did I say for or against. There were a lot for, there were a lot against. Uh, what I'm listening for are really the type of arguments that they're making. Were those uh, letters persuasive? 
they yeah, were very what, important for me to read them. The, the fear of people, you know, hearing someone talk about, you know, their five-year-old son was killed uh, by a pit bull, as well as people saying, hey, I have a pit bull in my family. I love my pit bulls. We grew up with pit bulls. That stuff is important for me to hear. I mean, I can relate to them. And in the end, Denver Mayor Michael Hancock vetoed lifting Denver's pit bull ban, the first veto of his administration. You've appointed the leader of your new Office of Climate Action, Sustainability, and Resiliency. Uh, she's a sustainability consultant from Chicago, Grace Rink. Just after that announcement, I want to note that the advocacy group Walk Denver put out an alert. If Denver is going to achieve its climate goals, the most impactful thing we can do in the realm of transportation is to reduce the amount of driving we do in the city. Do you agree fundamentally with the premise that fewer people should be in cars in Denver? Fewer people, uh, I don't know, let me just look at it differently. Sure. We need to reduce the number of single-occupied vehicles in the city of Denver. We know the number one cause of uh, carbon emissions are automobiles. And when we have a 73% um, single-occupied vehicle rate in the city of Denver, at the rate in which we're growing, it's not sustainable. It's people driving not alone in their cars. Healthy. They're driving alone in their cars. And, and you got to recognize this city grows by 23% on average per day. These are people driving into the city of Denver to work. And the reality is is that that's not sustainable either if they're in single-occupied single, po- single vehicles. So the reality is we've got to get better, which means we have to become more a multimodal uh, system. We're going to be squeezing our roads because part of the roads are going to be used for bikes and part of the roads are going to be used to help our pedestrians feel safer. Okay, so is it that you get more people into those vehicles or you get more people out of vehicles altogether into some other form of transit? Hopefully all of it's part of uh, uh, helping us be healthier and more sustainable. I feel like they've been trying to get the carpool thing off the ground since I was a kid. Yeah, we all I mean, right. You know? Right, right. The reality is, you know, if more people in cars, you know, theoretically and logically, you think there'd be less cars on the road. So that if that's part of what we do, then that's good. Um, but we also need to make sure we're drive, growing transit, we're growing bicycle lanes, and we're also making it safer for folks who are walking. How do you do that, especially with transit, as RTD shrinks service? Yeah, RTD issue is very concerning, and I, I don't bite my tongue on that. It's something that could set our plans to, to build our mode share uh, back by years, and, and that is not okay. And so as a city, we're going to work to lean in and try to do what we can to help RTD think through how they can be uh, more efficient and more sustainable in the, in the growing, uh, coming years. Um, leadership's important that. Design's important. Making sure that it's a good partnership with the cities. And so I don't bite my tongue. That is a concern for us. But at the same time, we've got to remain aggressive uh, with regards to our efforts to build out our mode share. Well, in the last election, of course, Denver voters chose to create a Department of Transportation and Infrastructure to give walking, biking, transit a higher profile. And within that is the possibility that the city mounts its own transit service. It sounded to me from your last answer like you uh, first want to work with RTD, see what support you can be. But do you think that Denver should mount its own transit service? Any update on that? No, you know, the overall vision was not to mount our own transit service, but if we were, it was to be a complement to the current service that's in place. First, last mile, the gaps that exist, maybe from Cherry Creek to downtown, from, from, from Cherry Creek to Denver and National Airport. How do we do those things so that people aren't jumping in single-occupied vehicles or, or even, you know, calling TNCs to pick them up or, you know, our Uber ride shares and, and lifts and so forth. How do we do that in a way that's efficient and, 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 um, um, so, and, and efficient and environmentally sound for our community? Those are kind of transit plans or thoughts we had, but if we have to look at a more thorough, bigger strategy, we will do that. But that's why we enabled Dottie to be able to do that. 
uh, and and just introduce Dottie, Dottie to the Department world. Department of yeah. uh, Transportation Infrastructure. We okay. just cut it down. The LTI. I see. Uh, so no immediate update on that last mile no. thing. No, no. What does it mean for the city to support RTD? What does that mean? You know what? It is really a thoughtful conversation about their short uh, their challenges, their shortcomings, their challenges. Labor and among how, them. Labor. How can we help fill that void? How can we be a partner with you? You'll be a better partner with us. What's better the understand answer? what our needs are. We don't know that yet. We're engaging RTD now. We want to know what can we possibly do to help you with your labor challenges. You know, they may have some ideas. Our Department of uh, Transportation Infrastructure, as well as Economic Development and Workforce Teams might have some ideas. And so I think marrying those kind of options are, are, are helpful. I'm going to be meeting with the chair of the RTD board very shortly. You know, I know her for a long time. She's a wonderful, wonderful person, has done a lot of work in this field. And uh, we want to be as helpful. We, you know, we're not here to pile on RTD. We need them to be a solid partner. You mentioned walking, right? That's yep. one. You don't. A bus is certainly an option. A car full of people is an option. So right. is walking. Right. When I asked for people's questions on Twitter, I noted several of them who just thought the quality of the sidewalks mm -hmm. or their ex mere existence in some parts of the city was not spectacular. Right. Do you hear this, Mayor? Yeah, absolutely. That's and how why do you we answer? Have a, we have a strategy around improving our sidewalks and, 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 and placing sidewalks where we have gaps in the city of Denver. So we've increased our funding in sidewalks, uh, on sidewalk repair and sidewalk replacement. Um, as you know, it's the uh, adjacent property owner's responsibility. So we have a partnership, our plan to partner with uh, homeowners and property owners if they need help um, in terms of borrowing from a loan fund that we set up to help replace and repair uh, sidewalks. So our goal is to to improve that. We also had it built into our bond program. And so we had, I think, in excess of $40 million going to sidewalks, uh, 14 million, excuse me, going to sidewalks. So the reality is, is that uh, we, we have strategies. We are about a billion dollar plus uh, on a uh, challenge with regards to sidewalks. So it's not going to be That's the done. need? That's the need in the last wow. estimate that I heard. And it's not something that is new. I mean, concrete and sidewalks are very expensive, interestingly enough. <laughs> um, but uh, we have some strategies to try to bite into that. It won't be something done overnight, but we know, they should, you know, our people know, those who are leaning in know that we're working hard to, to try to address it. Sticking with climate, there's been talk of a climate tax in Denver. Mm -hmm. City Council, of course, you know, was pursuing one, but it was put on hold as part of a compromise with your office. Meanwhile, a citizen initiative is moving forward. Uh, do you support the concept, broadly, writ large, of taxing residents, businesses, for excessive or polluting energy use? I think what has to happen, and the greatest threat to any of uh, the work around climate change, which I think is one of the greatest threats to, to mankind, is that we must do this in a way that is equitable. We can't just throw out taxes and fees without understanding what its its uh, uh, its impact is, is on people, right? I know you so, had concerns about yeah, small businesses. And, and small businesses, um, older adults on fixed income, they're already uh, being burdened with the cost of living increase in Denver. So we must be thoughtful. And the last thing we need is for sustainability or climate change efforts to be seen as a, a, uh, a, a middle class, or excuse me, upper middle class or yuppie kind of movement because you're going to leave a lot of people out who won't participate. And we need everybody to be brought along. And so we have to do this in an inclusive and open way. And that's the thing that I share with city council. You do this and you put a lot of small businesses 
uh, behind the eight ball on this or you, you, you hurt people who are trying to just make it in today's society, you will forever turn them off from their role in climate change. But as some of these have been built, it's to penalize people who waste energy or mm-hmm. use an excessive amount. Absolutely. So, I mean, how else do you drive behavior change? Well, I think one of the things you have to do is make sure you're engaging people in conversation because there's a lot of things people can do to, one, become aware, I mean, of the fact that you can do things to, to conserve your energy and do things that not to not be as uh, detrimental to the to the environment as as some of us are. Um, so we got to raise the level of awareness, and we've got to make sure people are engaged and invited to be included in this process. You do this from a top down or from a, a, a position where you're not as, at all worried about taxation when it becomes regressive, you start losing folks. Our guest today is Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock. We recorded the conversation in his office overlooking Civic Center. On a shelf behind him, a mock Wheaties box with him on the cover. It says champion for students. There was an elf on a shelf dressed in Broncos attire. And on the wall, a photo of Dr. King at the March on Washington. More after a break with an issue that cities are grappling with globally, affordable housing. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Every day on CPR News, you hear stories that transport you out of your world and help you understand the lives of others all across the state and beyond. Hi, I'm Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. Colorado Public Radio brings you impactful journalism that's only possible because you value and support it. You rely on CPR News to keep you informed. Please support this vital service by donating at CPR.org. My guest is Denver's Mayor Michael Hancock. He has led the city for almost a decade. His third and final term ends in 2023. If Twitter is any indication, our audience is eager to hear from you on affordable housing. Yeah. It's a perennial issue for Mm -hmm. Denver and many other cities in Colorado. How will you move the needle in your final term? And and let me point out, more than half of Denverites are rent burdened. Yes. Uh, They spend more than a third of their income on housing. How do you make a dent? How do you move the needle? It's a multi-pronged approach, Ryan, and, and I've said this from day one. Not only do we have to look at improving or increasing the stock or inventory around affordable housing, which we are doing. We've committed over $300 million. Over the next five to six years, we've already issued bonds or with, in partnership with Denver Housing Authority at $108 million to, to expedite and to surge the market with building of affordable properties. How many units is that, just for context? We hope to build in excess of 6,000, 6,300 units, hopefully more. And uh, so what we're doing is we're securing land. We're partnering with developers and organizations that are building affordable housing. We're trying to surge in the market as fast as we, we possibly can. But it also has got to include wage stagnation or addressing wage stagnation. One, one reason why I moved to increase minimum wage in Denver. We've got a lot of resources being made in this community or in this city, in this economy. Um, but yet people are still not making the wages that they deserve to be making. With wage stagnation has dogged this nation for the last four decades. And not only do the city, does the city of Denver, but the state of Colorado and the United States federal government have to get serious about helping people with regards to wages. It's interesting. There's a restaurant in my neighborhood. I'm, I'm not going to name it, but uh, they had a sign on the door. They said, we, we've stopped dinner service because Denver raised the minimum wage. Yeah. So you have pushback as well from businesses who are saying you're squeezing us. Uh-huh. Talk about the balance there of wage growth 
and supporting the same folks and businesses you were just talking about earlier yeah. with a potential climate tax. There's a lot that we need to do to help our small businesses. I'm also worried about their lease costs. Um, we are seeing that exponentially go up because of the cost of the valuation of buildings, commercial buildings, have also increased. And so we're having ongoing conversations with the governor, the state legislature, to see what we can do to address this issue of uh, rising costs for our small businesses with regards to their leases. Wage um, stagnation is something that we knew would, at some point, challenge some companies. But the reality is that does that mean we don't do it? We've got to address wages. I don't know, outside of climate change, if there's any other issue that threatens um, really the, the civility, the um, stabilization of our families and our way of life in this nation than the stagnation of wages. And, uh, you know, that's backed up with a lot of data. When you have 50% of your people overburdened with rents, um, the reality is not just the cost of housing. That's a big part of it. It's the fact that people's wages are not going up commensurate with the cost of living in our city. You mentioned the price of leases. What would it look like for the state or the city to address that? I mean, it is a market. Well, Gallagher. The reality is it's a market. an amendment the reality, in the state constitution. What, what landowners or property owners are doing is passing the cost of their valuations and property tax increases onto, onto their leasers. Um, and so, uh, leasees, excuse me. And so the reality is, is that we have to address the challenges around Gallagher. Now, that's politically difficult. State legislature uh, has to think outside a box about how we begin to address the issue of Gallagher, which provides a, a disproportionate burden on the commercial property owners than our residential. And I'll just um, say that Gallagher is part of like the fiscal thicket. It's that's been referred right. to as the Gordian knot. It's Absolutely. along with Tabor, along with Arviscow Bird, mm-hmm. along with Amendment 23, the all of these things right. in the state constitution that are governing budgeting. Absolutely. So the problem is, is that we are seeing, you know, if you own property, it's good to see your valuations go up. We all want that, right? But our property taxes go up commensurate with the valuation. And when that happens in a commercial and you have leases, they're passing that on, that cost to the leasee. And that's what we're really seeing is the greatest threat to our small businesses. Do your lobbying for changes to Gallagher? Absolutely. Which would require, a, a, would that require yes, a popular vote? Yeah, constitutional. Yeah. So it's something that I've talked about, boy, since I've been mayor and actually maybe since I was on council, but certainly more aware of it now. There was a time when the former late mayor of Aurora Steve Hogan and I were on stage, and uh, we were both at the, we were talking at a DBJ uh, Denver Business Journal breakfast, and we had a conversation. Someone brought up the issue, you know, the 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 knot you talked about, and we both looked at each other without talking and just simply said, "It's time for us to address Gallagher and Tabor as a state. This is a fiscal, potentially a fiscal." crises for the state. If we don't find a way to address it, we're certainly going to lose businesses. We're certainly losing small businesses as a result of it. And yet voters statewide have been unwilling to make the kinds of changes Absolutely. that Democratic politicians have been asking for right. lately. Together with Denver Public Schools, you're putting $200,000 towards micro-grants to fight youth violence. I guess I, I want to define that term, youth violence. Yeah. What does that it's mean It's really youth to gun you? violence is what we're working to address, and, and a great deal of concern, as you know, metro-wide, that we've had an increase in the amount of uh, youth gun violence in, in our city. Is that gang uh, violence, Mayor? It's not necessarily gang violence, no. And we're not, matter of fact, I think our law enforcement will tell you they don't see it as gang-related violence. These are beefs that typically start with young people on social media and are being played out. And we're also seeing younger youth being engaged. Typically, it was your 12 to 24 with more of the violence occurring with the older kids. Now you're seeing younger kids who are carrying weapons and taking them into middle schools. In some aspects, are instances in elementary schools. And so we're working with different public schools to begin to bridge some of those challenges, particularly with before, after, and summer programming. 
Okay, so that's what the programs would look like. That's right. what you're helping fund. Right. We want to partner with community-based organizations to do that. That already exist, That already exist and are in the game. So the idea is that when they're not in school, these young people, right. there is something for them to do. Right. You talked about these beefs starting online and then resulting in violence. Can you right. just say a few more words about yeah, that? Yeah, you know, what, what's, what really surprised me when I sat down with law enforcement and some in our legal community, that what they're noticing, not all, but a lot of these interactions with our young people began through social media. There's evidence that as you look back on their social media posts, that a lot of beefs start there, that they're going back and forth. And then ultimately, there's an interaction in person. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of, sometimes it's, it's a deadly uh, interaction. And so what we are seeing is that they're not necessarily gang-related, but that young people are carrying weapons, many of them taken from, you know, uh, from unsecured situations, and are using them to settle beasts that uh, started with just words across social media. And summer programs and after-school programs is the way to address that? Well, one way to help address it is we're going to take a multi-pronged approach. One is to make sure that you might recall we partner with a couple organizations to hand out 1,200 gun locks so that people who carry their guns in their cars or at home, that they secure them. That's first and foremost. The next step that we took was to partner with DPS here with this situation where we're working with community-based organizations to keep young people safe and involved with programs after school and during summer hours. And then the third step we're going to continue to work on is employment opportunities, education around, you know, why, you know, when you carry a gun, the dangers and the trouble, the consequences that you can find for yourself. So it's going to be a multi-pronged approach. It's that what we did with DPS is just one step in a multi-step effort. Gun education, that's not going to be the least bit controversial. Right. <laughs> Right. How do you develop that curriculum? Well, I'm not going to develop it. I'm sure there are people out there who already have it. But the reality is that young people, you know, we, we got uh, a lot around young people and their relationship with guns and understanding what happens when you use a gun on someone. And it's time to begin to break down those barriers and have real candid conversations with young people about guns. Mayor, thanks for your time. Always good to see you. Michael Hancock is mayor of Denver, and you helped shape that conversation with your questions through Twitter. If you're not following us, I encourage you to do so. It's a chance to share your feedback, help shape our stories, and get to know the Colorado Matters team better. The show is at Colorado Matters. I'm at CPR Warner. Coloradans have a big decision to make in the presidential primary. We're now part of Super Tuesday. In the San Luis Valley, Sheldon Rocky plans to vote based on his experience as a potato farmer. CPR's Andrea Dukakis has this profile as part of our Voter Voices project. I met Sheldon Rocky at a huge agriculture conference in this part of the state where farming is a way of life. I love the fact that we're actually doing something that helps other people out or feeding people. He's also glad he gets to work outside, but wears lots of hats. You're not just in the field. You have to be a good financer. You have to understand science, but you also have to understand the business side of things, too. And like other farmers and ranchers in the Valley, he has specific concerns about his bottom line. For example, what he sees as years of federal government overregulation. We're good at what we do. We're not out here trying to hurt the environment or those that we feed. We just are at the point where it's better to kind of let us do our job without telling us how to do it. 
Rocky likes that President Trump has worked to roll back environmental rules, like how the federal government defines wetlands. As for the tariffs Trump imposed on China, Rocky was initially concerned about the financial hit to farmers, though his crops weren't affected. But I think in the long term, it's really going to be effective, and it's some more opportunities indoors that we didn't have before. So Sheldon Rocky likes a lot of things President Trump has done. He's not registered as a Republican, but he's always leaned that way. This year, he's open to voting for a Democrat over Trump. He was troubled that Trump asked the leader of Ukraine to investigate the son of his opponent, Democrat Joe Biden. Yeah, I mean, there's always some concern about what's going on behind closed doors is always in the best interest of our country. It's just a moral thing. Sheldon Rocky plans to sit out the primary and see which Democratic candidate gets nominated. He says he likes some of the things Pete Buttigieg is saying. In the meantime, he's involved in local and national politics to advocate for farmers. We as producers in this area, we have to have a voice to keep what we have here. Soon, Sheldon Rocky will go to Washington, D.C. to lobby Republican Senator Cory Gardner and Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. He likes both of them. And his presidential vote is still up for grabs. Andrea Dukakis, CPR News. You can listen for profiles of other voters leading up to Super Tuesday and see more of them at CPR.org. Thanks for spending time with Colorado Matters today, a radio show and podcast that would not exist without your financial support. We're able to cover this diverse, growing state only because listeners become members. We are especially grateful for new members. They are the shot in the arm that keeps CPR News dynamic. Please give it CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner, and again, thank you.